0: if you don't know, um, we, we've been going through the book of Titus. Uh, uh, we're about our fifth week in. Something for you to be familiar with, if you, you've been coming only for a couple weeks now or this is your first time, um, we're going to always go through books in the Bible. We'll, we'll take um, kind of you know, offshoot times to do something separate, maybe a week or two or, or something like that. But for the most part, our DNA, bread and butter, is going to be going through books in the Bible. And the book that we are going through currently is towards the end of your Bible. You can open up there now in the book of Titus. Um, and, and it's uh, written by, and I've said this to give you a little bit of background. So if you've heard this, just give me grace. Um, it's written by a guy named Paul who goes around very early in the New Testament planting churches. And as he plants these churches, um, he writes letters to these churches. Well, at one point he writes a letter, not specifically to the church, but he writes letters to the pastors of those churches. So he writes letters, if you've seen First and Second Timothy, to Timothy to tell them how to operate within the church. He writes a letter to now Titus to tell them how to operate in the church. And so now that's what we're going to go through and we've been going through is the book of Titus. It's letter from Paul to Titus and how to operate. Now, it's beneficial for you to know the reason it's, it's good for us to process books like this is because we get to kind of think internally, very introspective as a church, So your non-Christian friends or or, uh, people who are outside of the church are not going to care what the qualifications for an elder are. But you being a part of the church is good for you to know that. And So we have addressed that in the book of Titus. The people outside of the church are not going to care and don't really need to know how the church should view um, women's roles, men's roles, uh, uh, um, uh, employees' roles. But, But you as a member of the church should know that. And so um, we wanted to put those things, continue to put those things in front of you, and that's what we'll continue to do. Now, we're in chapter two. We're going to finish chapter two uh, this morning, but here's what I, I wanted to say. Last week I gave an analogy that something that's going on in the book of Titus um, that's going to kind of help uh, keep our equilibrium stable. All right. And I gave this analogy of, of bowling, uh, bumpers that what the book of Titus is going to do is in some moments, um, we're going to feel like we've thrown a bowling ball and it's going to hit a bumper and it's going back, back, back. And those bumpers are grace and works. Okay. So one moment we're going to feel like, uh, Paul is telling Titus it's all about grace. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. And then another moment he's going to go, but it's works, it's works, it's works, it's works. Right. And so we're going to feel like we're going back and forth in this. And that's what I want to address. Um, Uh, this morning and go at that. So you're probably in Titus already. I want to read something to you from the book of James, okay? Um, In the book of James, he's going to address something similar like this, and it's going to be a great template for us to get out of the blocks properly in understanding this text, okay? So it's in James chapter 2, verse 14. I'm going to read all the way uh, through verse 20. It's what it says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well, but even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So what this text is getting at in the book of James is the idea that there is a type of faith that is useless. That you can have a faith that is dead. That there is a, ter- a certain type of faith out there that does not produce, it does not show, it does not reveal, and that is a dead Faith, those type of faiths exist, and James is pushing against that. Well, what we're going to process this morning is, is what that looks like to be the opposite, to have a faith that is growing, to have a faith that is alive, and how we do that properly. Because if you were with us in chapter one, we ran into a, a, a part where um, uh, Paul is addressing some Pharisees, some, some legalists in the room, who are basically telling these people, what you do is why God loves you. You need to make sure, so listen, yeah, Jesus is good, but make sure that you're circumcised. Jesus is good, but don't watch Deadpool. Jesus is good, but don't watch Harry Potter. Jesus is good, but don't, but don't, but don't. Or Jesus is good, but do but do, but do. And there's all these things around you being saved because of what you do. And so Paul addressed that. And at the end of that, in verse 16, what he laid out was this idea that if you live like that, you're literally, and I quote, unfit for good works. That word, what I, what I gave you the example of is it usually deals with currency. And what it's saying is it's the idea of you're trying to pay God, but that money's not accepted here, bro. That's a false currency. That's a made up dollar you're trying to go to God and say, God, see, I'm a good person. I don't care if you're a good person. That is, that's not why I love you. That has nothing to do. That's a false currency. And so the question I want to answer is what is a proper currency? How do we actually live out living, being a Christian, living for God? What does that actually look like? And our passage this morning addresses that. So if you already haven't opened to, to Titus chapter two, get there now. Um, a big part of, of our leadership training that we do in this year-long leadership training process that we have is really trying to teach leaders um, how to um, disciple through a gospel lens. And, and so I kind of want to l- allow you to, to see into some of that for, um, for the sake of you being disciples, um, having a healthy, vibrant relationship with God. And so this, this passage is really going to be beneficial for that. So um, if you're new, we're going to just do a big Bible study together, okay? So I'm going to read it, explain it, read it, and explain it. So um, the w- first word that I want to read, and I promise I will do more than a word at a time, um, but it's the word for, so you're going to see in verse 11 is where we are of chapter 2 in Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, just very quickly, any good astute um, reader. Doesn't even have to be a Bible reader. If you see the word for, if you see the word therefore, if you see the word so or so that, um, always look backwards, okay? And this word for is coming from what we just talked about last week. And, and essentially what he said is, older men in the room, older men, here are things you need to be doing. Ch-ch-ch-ch-ch. Older women in the room, here are things you need to be doing. Younger women, older men, or or younger men, okay? So it's giving. it was giving these lists and it's you're kind of walking out going, wait a minute, so I need to be doing things. It's almost like uh, Christianity is Jesus going, I love you, give me this list, you don't need to do anything. Okay, now you see I love you, here's your list, right? There's this idea of this back and forth and so um, he's saying for, because those things are true, because uh, uh, um, I'm asking you to do things, remember this, what are we called to remember? For the grace of God has appeared. So yes, we're to do things, but keeping in mind for the grace of God has appeared. That's why, so you can almost say, do these things because the grace of God has appeared. Now, this is a lot more difficult for me to explain those of you who grew up in church, because um, I I got saved in high school. And I remember very specifically, once I got saved, God did things. And and doing things for God seems like it was easy. I was still sinning, but I I desperately wanted to get it right. But um, what I've noticed in my relationship with God and discipling men and women um, in their relationship with God is what tends to happen when people have grown into, uh, grown up in church or been Christian for a long time is they tend to kind of grow callous towards things like this. They forget why they're a Christian and maybe they know the right answers, but there's not this emotional overflow of the goodness of God. So, um, I want to do my best job in providing whatever passion is within me to remind you very quickly before we go on this simple statement, the grace of God has appeared. I want to remind you where you were before the grace of God has appeared and where you are now. Because here's the truth, man. Um, Maybe you don't hold to this worldview or this story, but there was a time where you wouldn't have died. There was a time in all of humanity where things were not broken. Where, Where women, when you went through childbirth, it wouldn't have been as awful as it is. Like to work, you, you wouldn't have had to work so hard and that it, the, the earth wouldn't be working against you. There was a time where things were not broken. You wouldn't have felt pain of a friend leaving you. You wouldn't have felt hurt of losing a loved one. There was a time when those things existed. But the reality is we only get two chapters in before they're gone in the Bible. Genesis 1 and 2. And in Genesis 3, what man chooses to do is chooses not God. And because of that, everything falls apart. And it's a story I've tried to put in front of us over and over and over again. But it's a reality we've all lived in. So I don't need to put too too many colors on on the canvas because you recognize what it's like to lose someone and feel the pain that you can't even breathe in the hospital room. You know what that's like. So to feel that pain, to feel that loss, but more appropriately, to to see what sin does to humanity and to the earth is awful. We're told that there's a part where God looks at one of the the men in the Bible and says, be careful now because sin is crouching at your door and it desires to overtake you. And so that's what sin is doing. Since since Genesis 3, things have been broken and and over and over sin is taking over, it's crouching at our door and it's desiring to overtake us. But here's the catch, man. God is still just and God is still good. And the dude don't play around He's perfect. And so he, at his core, though is full of justice, is absolutely at the same time full of mercy. And so he looks and he goes, I have to execute justice. No one in this room would have somebody walk into their home, murder and rape their children, their their wife and, and kids. As the man goes out, he stands before the judge. You're sitting in the courtroom. This man who did all these heinous acts, the guy stands before the judge and goes, but judge, I'm so sorry. And the judge goes, you know what? He's sorry. Let him go. No one would go, that's a good judge. No one. You want to know why? Because you're made in the image of your creator and you have justice within you. And so in the same way, we've created these heinous acts. We've done these terrible things and God is just. He's just and so he's going to execute justice. You sin, therefore you should be punished. But he's full of mercy, isn't he? At that moment, the grace of God has appeared. At that moment, the grace of God has appeared. So he executes justice. Don't get it twisted. But he executes it on his son. And the grace of God has appeared and now suddenly salvation is for all people. Like this list, like looking backwards, it doesn't matter, older woman, younger woman, older man, younger man. It doesn't matter where you are. Gentile, slave, free. It's for you. And so... What we see is this salvation has appeared and it's important that we don't understand just grace. The grace of God has appeared as some ethereal thing. Jesus has come on the scene and he's a big deal. And then it goes on to say, as I just said, bringing salvation for all people so we don't get lost in the reform conversation, if you know what that even is. But some of you theological neatnecks love to argue about this. The grace of God has appeared to all people is a clear indication that's referring back to this list of people. I don't wanna get caught into this whole conversation, but here's what I will say. Grace is offered to everyone. Okay, Um, I have my neighbor, my family. Like the grace of God is put in front of us. Anybody who wants Jesus Christ can have Jesus Christ, and that is what Jesus has come. Anybody who doesn't want Him will not get Him. Okay, so the grace of God has appeared for all people. Salvation is here for all people. Now, next part of the verse, or next part of the section, uh, verse twelve. I want you to look at the next word. Okay, so the grace of God has appeared, and it's brought salvation. There's our first bumper. It's brought salvation. Are you saved because of what you do? No. Gosh, no. Stop living like that. You are not saved because of what you do. But at the same time, the grace of God has not just saved you. It is now training you. Verse 12. Read verse 11 again. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Training us. So this is where I need you to put your theological uh, neat neck uh, hats on, okay? I'm going to share three fancy words with you, and I need you to track with me. Um, These three words are justification, sanctification, and glorification, because your revelation is at your anticipation. No, I'm just kidding. Okay? So um, here's why these three words are important, but I I, I don't really care if you can know the the theological terms specifically, but these words are important the way that we process so much so that we actually bring it um, into our foundations class when we teach um, people who have just become new to the faith and are processing uh, kind of fundamental things of the the, the Christian faith. Um, This is something that we do. And so here's what I, I want you to understand. The first word is justification. What I just explained to you is justification, the idea that you were a sinner. Okay. And when Jesus was born and Jesus came, he lived a perfect life. Check this out. He did not sin. He never wavered. He did not sin. But here's what we know Christianity 101. He suffered like a sinner. And so this is what happened. Okay. Your sins were imputed or put onto the cross. Your sins were placed on Jesus's back and Jesus paid For your sin. He paid your debt. So let's go back to the courtroom. The man who murdered all these these bad things stands before the judge and goes, I am guilty. The judge says, yes, you are guilty. But someone steps in and says, but I will serve the the sentence. I will take the punishment. And that's exactly what Jesus did. But, But it doesn't end there because justification is not just Jesus dying for your sins, but check it out. If he was just to die, all of his righteousness would be wasted. But rather, he takes on your sin... And then he gives you his righteousness. This is theologically known as the double imputation. That that um, imputed on him is your sin, imputed on you is your righteousness. So it's not a matter of, hey, all of my sin is gone, now I need to live a perfect life. No, 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 all of your sin is gone and now all of his righteousness is to you, it's done. Now what your justification does is it guarantees the last word, your glorification or eternity. So if you've been in any type of Christian circles, you, you, you know the, the language of saved and eternity, that Jesus has saved you for, for, for eternity. He has secured your eternity. But we use the, the, the word saved um, in kind of a weird way, don't we? Because we say, I am saved. That, that's weird. Think about the present tense you're, you're declaring there. Are you really? Like you're saved right now? Well, yeah, I'm saved. Or, well, I mean, I will be saved. Right? Like, Do you see that, that it's, it's, a, it's a weird way to process salvation? And it is true. You are saved because of justification Your glorification, the idea that you will spend eternity with God without the brokenness of the world, is set because of what Jesus has done. There's nothing that can mess that up. Jesus' blood is stronger than you going off on some night fling and feeling like you don't deserve God. Jesus' blood is stronger than that. So because of what Jesus has done in his justification, he has secured your glorification. But there's something in the middle, right? Like we live right now, where there's moments where I go, why am I doing this? Like I believe in Jesus, but I'm like struggling. Why do I continue to live like I don't believe in Jesus? And that middle word is called sanctification. It's your growing into, hear this, who God has already made you to be. Because of Jesus and what he has done on the cross, he has set your eternity, it's done and set. And now you live like he has already made you. And what the Bible is gonna say right here is that is grace. So the grace of God has justified you because of the grace of God. it it is Now you can recognize you've been glorified or you will be glorified and your eternity is set. But there's this middle thing in in, in the the middle uh, called sanctification that's really unique because check it out. Sanctification is Jesus working through you. So in um, English, we have two tenses, okay? I told you to put your hats on and, and be smart with me. So um, this is simple. We have two tenses in English. We have an active and we have a passive. I am an active agent and I throw the ball to Dan. Dan is the passive agent of receiving that ball. I throw, he catches it, okay? Active, passive. But in Greek, there's a middle tense. I know it sounds weird, but there's this tense called the middle. And every time it talks about sanctification, it's both it's you actively being passive to what God wants to do. It's you actively surrendering. It's, it's this middle ground. And that is sanctification. And check out what's doing that. Grace. Grace is sanctifying you. Grace is training you. The the, the word train there is is where we get our word pedagogy from. If you're a teacher in the room, you understand you have a certain pedagogy. It means how to teach, right? So maybe you like to ask questions or or maybe you like to let them come to uh, uh, resolutions on their own. You have a certain pedagogy. Well, in that pedagogy, it's where we get our word. It literally is like parenting. The grace of God is doing this. Hey, buddy, look at me, buddy. I, I know that that's your old man. I know you want to do that, but come on. Remember what's ahead of you remember and it's training us and like a parent th- th- this idea of training is in the continuous sense you can see it in the ing of that word can't you it's it's not just trained you it's training you right now it's going no stupid no no no, no listen okay no no hey believe can you see can you like th- this is this is why the, the holy spirit is called a paraclete he's our encourager he's a rebuker he's he's showing us ah no 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 wait a minute don't do that Hey, get up, get out of the bed, pick up your Bible and do this. He's training us. He's guiding us. It's, it's hard work. Put your heels in the ground. Let's do this as I am actively being passive towards the grace of God. That is how the grace of God is training us. But it is always a response to this. It's always a response to justification. Because of what Jesus has done, I can't help but act. But what does that look like specifically? Luckily, Paul gives us some tangible things. So here's how the grace of God, it doesn't just bring salvation, but it also trains us. And this is what it says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled and upright, uh, live self-controlled and upright and godly lives In the present age, we're going to actually spend most of our time on this um, specific verse. And so here's what I want to, as much as I want to get into what ungodliness, worldly passions, to live a self-controlled, upright, and godly life, I think for the most part, um, I don't need to go into detail about those because you probably already know what they are. But I'm more more, um, interested in um, the first two words that appear in that section right there. So training us, and then it says these two words, to renounce, to renounce. Now, here's what I need you to hear, okay? Okay. This renounce is like emphatic. It's like imagine if I was to go and honestly, it has to deal with like removing citizenship, like biblical. So it's this idea of no, no, you're done. You're done that was your old way, renounce it, it's done, stop acting like that, and everything up to this point has been ING, hasn't it, it's been in this continuous sense, but not renounce, because there was a moment when you decided to follow Jesus Christ, because of the goodness that he has brought to you, and it's not this, I renounce, I renounce, no, 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 what he's putting in front of us is, no, no, you've decided to follow Jesus Christ, be done with it, it's over, renounce it, you're not a citizen of this world anymore. You're not a citizen of this age anymore. Ungodliness, worldliness, sensuality is not who you are and you struggle because the old citizen wants to come out. But I've renounced that thing. I'm done. And I'm going to continue to fight because of my proclamation. Because I've renounced I'm going to say, now I'm going to make this fight. I'm going to make this fight so much. This is how Paul describes it. I love him playing this out. Listen, 1 Timothy 4, 7. He says we're to train ourselves in righteousness. In Philippians 3, we're to labor in prayer. Run to win. In First. Corinthians 9, 26 and 27 were to beat our bodies, right? Ain't nobody beating their body in here, right? So the idea of I've chosen, I've renounced, I've decided I'm going this way. And if I can, as pastorally as I possibly can, but kind of be mean, um, put in front of you, this is the part of the American ethos Christian that is clearly losing ground. That somehow we've made a God in our own image, though Genesis 1 and 2 tells us the opposite. That somehow God is okay with your sin. And he's never been okay. So much so that he's willing to kill his own son for it. He's not okay with it. So just in case we've forgotten, I found about 140 verses that talk about our reaction to God's action in grace. Just in case. Now I wanted to share all 140 of them, but I can't. Um, because of time but I'm going to share about a dozen of them just in case we forgot what the Bible isn't putting in front of us to renounce that old life hear me when I say this Second Corinthians 7.1 therefore since we have these promises dear friends let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit perfecting holiness out of reverence for God in First Peter one fourteen and sixteen, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, check it out, you also be holy in all of your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy. For I am holy. Uh, Romans 8. And we're going to do eight, one, eight, four, eight, thirteen, 8.4, 13, and 14. Romans 8.1. There, there is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Well, isn't that awesome? We all love putting that on a coffee mug. But the rest of the verse, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This applies to a certain group of people who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Verses 13 and 14. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We're not done. Hebrews 5, 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23 through 24. Jesus answered them. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. Hebrews 9, 12 through 14 in his talking about Jesus own blood he entered the most holy place once for all having obtained eternal redemption the blood of Christ who through eternal uh, through eternal spirit offered himself without spot to god cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living god uh, third john uh, verse 11 there's no chapters in third john beloved do not imitate evil but imitate good whoever does good is from god whoever does evil has not seen god this is in the bible This is in the Bible, and I honestly could spend our whole time together reading things that say, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you've put your hands to the plow, man. You've put it and say, I'm going to till this ground, and it's going to be tough, and it's going to be hard, but I'm fit for the kingdom of God, and I am not fit if I look back and go, I want my old life. I want my old life. I want my old life. No. No. If we're, if we're going to emphasize what's being emphasized in the text right now, it is that you have been trained to renounce ungodliness. I am no longer that man. Now, 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 that's different. That's way different than going, all right, I need to try. I need to try. I need to figure this out. The language I've tried to use in front of you, there's a big difference between um, I can't and I won't. Like to say, like, I understand there's diseases when it comes to alcoholism and and, and all those things, but there are certain things when it comes down to it, you just don't want to renounce those things. You don't want to be done with them. You want to continue to fondle the things of the world. And I promise you, as a Christian, as a son of God, he loves you enough to chop off your hands. So putting these texts in front of us, it may sound um, outright like I'm backloading the gospel. Uh, What I mean by that is you're saved by grace, okay? But don't forget about works, Listen, your justification is what seals your glorification. The fact that he died for you, you're saved. It's done. It's done. So you getting it right and wrong is not what, you're not like on Monday you do a terrible job. Oh, I probably am going to not spend eternity. Tuesday I do a good job. Oh, I'm probably going to spend eternity. No, no, no. Listen, it's already set. But because it's set, because it's set, I've renounced. I've looked at the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I said, there's nothing better There are false gods, there are synthetic joys, but nothing is better than Jesus Christ. And I've renounced those things. That is what we've been called to do as believers. Now, he's not done. Um, He goes on in verse 13 to say this, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know what's funny about this is um, we live, if you look at verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's a past thing, right? Jesus appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But at the same time, now we live in this state where we are waiting for a blessed hope. And so we kind of sit in that sanctification process, don't we? We're waiting for this hope. And, and, and you know what's, I think, crazy? And now we're going to get into the currency. Um, what should drive you stopping your sin? What should drive to, to, to get away from the pornography, to get away from uh, uh, the lust, to get away from the gossip, to get away from the greed, to get away from the anger, to get away from the stealing? What, what, what is it? What, what is it? What should drive that? It's the fact that that is not who you are. You are waiting to become what Jesus has already made you to be. And now you live in this to go, that's not who Jesus has made me to be. I, I need to shed that off. That's not who Jesus has made me to be. And I'm waiting. And, and and check this out. This only works if that's pulsing. This only works if the greatest moment in your life is not worth comparing. Like I just want him to come. I just want him to return. I, I cannot wait for him to return. I promise. No matter what you're saying in your mind right now, well, I wish, I want to get married first. No, no, listen to me. He's better than marriage. He, he, he's better than sex. He's better. He's better. He's going to, to, to come. I was reminded of a story that I've shared here on Sunday, but I just shared it in the Foundations class. C.S. Lewis talks about in Miracles how... Um, how it's like uh, um, when a mom and dad are, are, are having a conversation about sex, and, and their six-year-old son comes in, and he goes, "What are you talking about?" And they're like, "Oh, nothing. Just something that's going to be really awesome that you get to do when you're older." And and he goes, and he goes, "Well, does it involve chocolate, right?" Um, and you're kind of, you know, I always say this, I'm like, "Well, sometimes it does," but, um, <laughs> but, but, um, but, but it's important because in his mind, C.S. Lewis' um, observation is, in a six-year-old mind, the greatest thing that he could possibly have is chocolate. Like, yes, uh, does it involve chocolate? Because chocolate's the greatest thing on the earth. And you kind of sit there and go, no, bro, there's things better than chocolate, I promise you, right? In his mind. And so here we are looking at these temporal things going, yeah, I I mean, yeah, I want Jesus' return, that's good, but your mind's on chocolate, man. You have no idea what awaits that, that as you wait for this blessed return of Jesus Christ, and here we stand, and that is what motivates us. That is a currency we're fighting for. That's putting our heels on the ground, going, the grace of God is driving me towards this, and that is grace-driven effort. That is good works. That, that is what motivates us. Continuing on, we're almost done. Two more verses. He says this. So we wait for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I love the waiting. Notice the ing again. In Greek, it's in the continuous sense. That's why they're adding the ing. You're constantly waiting. Like be in that place of constantly waiting, constantly hopeful. Um, waiting for this blessed hope. Then he goes on to say this in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. I think this is the the part where we get to the the proper response. Like this is the best I can do. So um, uh, a couple months ago, we had um, my daughter Eve's birthday party and I wasn't there because I was out winning a basketball tournament with some guys in the church. So, you know, whatever. Um, (laughs) And so... um, so Candice had told me that as some of the neighborhood came, uh, kids have come over, there's a kid specifically named Brendan. He's a four-year-old kid, and this dude loves him some sweets. And, um, and Candice had told me that um, somehow he got a hold of a soda, some candy, cake, and ice cream. And, he, and she said he was out of his gourd, okay? <laughs> she said he couldn't stop jumping. He was, like, moving. Eventually, my dad, who at this point is a pretty calm guy, looked at him and said, kid, get away from me, Okay? <laughs> okay? And my dad's a pretty calm dude, right? He's an old meth addict, so you don't want to get him fired up. But he... he... <laughs> He, 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 uh, he, he was crazy, right? Now, here's what's crazy. A natural response to giving kids sugar is there's this flowing. There's this outflow. There's this, I can't help but move. I've got to move. I've got to talk fast. I've got to do it, right? Because we live in a world of action and reaction. And when you give a kid sugar, he reacts in the proper way. Well, what's being put in front of us now in verse 14 is the truth of the gospel is that Jesus has come to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. That is true. But those people are zealous for good works. To to put it another way, you've received grace in an action and you cannot help. Zealous, like like it's overflowing. It's literally zealous. It's overflowing. It is a reaction to getting the sugar. I cannot but help think through good works. I can't help but fight for good works. I can't help but keep my eye on good works as I focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. This is what he's putting that you have been saved, not just from eternal, like hell. That's not, that's like a small gospel. The reality is Put in front of you as you are to be a people who are zealous for good works because he's made you his own. And this is the gospel. This is what motivates you. Check it out. You do not serve Jesus Christ who says, Hey, son, daughter, you see that? I want you to walk that path. You see that? I know it sucks. I know it's going to be terrible. That's what I want you to walk. And unfortunately, this is in our mind, right? We feel like deistically God is up above He looks down on us and he goes, I'm going to have you take the terrible path. I'm going to have you go up and down and it's awful. And that's how we process God. But that's not true. You serve a God who's telling you to follow like this. He's walked that path. He's gone to the cross. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by friends. He knows what it's like in the garden his most heinous moment, the moment where where here in the garden of Gethsemane, he's going to be uh, captured, crucified. All of his friends flee from him. He knows what it's like for one of his good buddies to betray him. He knows what it's like to lose a loved one. He knows what it's like to feel like his father has left him. He knows what it's like to give his life. And now he said, I've given my life for you. I've called you to follow me in that. Do you understand the difference? This is a game changer for us. That we serve a Jesus in the grace that has appeared, check it out. He's called you in this moment to renounce ungodliness as he trains you, as he parents you, as like a little one-year-old stands up. No, no, it's okay, get up. And he's learning to walk. Come on, buddy, come on, because he's been down this path. That's so good. That's so good. The gospel is so great to hear that we don't serve a God that just points us in a direction, but we, we serve a God who asks us to follow in the direction he's already walked out. He loves you that much. May that motivate us to do this well. Then the last verse says this, and this is Paul specifically talking to Titus um, and talking about these things, that here's this bumper, that at the end of the day, you are saved by grace. It is necessary. Grace is necessary. There is no salvation without this unmerited favor with God. You can do nothing. You can earn nothing. But at the same time, works are inevitable. Grace is necessary, but works are are inevitable they will take place and the passage that i left out before i read verse 15 what was on the screen was matthew 7 to prove this because the reality is if you are a christian you will portray fruits usually the new testament talks about this reaction to grace as fruit and it talks about good works but for the most part it uses this idea of fruit because the reality is a lemon tree will produce lemons an apple tree will produce apples and so he gives this example in, in Matthew uh, chapter 7 when he says this, You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. This is just true. True. And what Paul says is take that reality, take that truth, grace and works together. C.S. Lewis says it's um, each side of the scissors, they cut together. Here, Here they stand because that's a reality. I need you to, and I quote, declare these things. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one disregard you see, there, there were men in the church who were like, ah, he's just some young dude. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Paul says, no, 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 no. hear me. Because if you have a church full of people who just relies on grace, their lives are going to be in shambles. They're going to believe in Jesus Christ, but they're also going to believe all the lies of the world. They think where their joy is found is in sex. They think where their joy is found is in money. They think where their joy is found in blank in blank, but that's not the reality. Licentiousness, you don't have a license to do you what you want. A Christian would never say that, but I need you to continue to push works to say because of grace, they respond perfectly. Properly, but if you only have works, people are going to disregard you because now you think you're saved by works. No, both are true. There is a type of faith that is dead, and that type of faith is workless. And so, to continue as as a pastor, I will continue to do my best to declare that truth to you. Forget me, as leaders, forget the leaders, you to each other. Continue to declare, hey man, like you say you're a Christian. We see each other on Sunday. We see each other in community. It doesn't feel like you're acting like that. Like, it, like, if, like if you're motivated by the gospel, why would you do that? I, I guess I'm not understanding, right? Like this is to look each other in the face and go, no, 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 I've got to, I've got to declare this. Or maybe there's a moment where they're like, you, don't, you say you feel like you're not loved by God because you've done this. I, I'm confused. Like he never loved you based on what you did before. Why would he love you now because of that? No, the reality is we continue to declare grace, and fruits, grace, and works, these things go hand in hand. It's the beauty of the gospel. So D.A. Carson, about 10 years ago, was wrestling with this idea. You don't need to know who he is. Um, he's really hard to understand anyway. Um, and so he, he, he brought up this, this language that I just used called grace-driven effort. Um, and I pretty much don't understand anything this dude says when I read him. But um, I thought this was a very helpful term. And in this section, I want to read this section to you because I think it's important that we recognize that when he continues to say, declare, continue to exhort and continue to rebuke, it's in the present tense, right? We're to continue to be doing this over and over and over. But the reality is we won't naturally do those things. We have to fight. Grace has to motivate us to, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with that. No, I've renounced it. It's done. And this is what he says on that front. People do not drift towards holiness, That deserves an amen on its own. We do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. And it's not true. We have to fight. The hope is bigger, the grace is bigger, the cross is bigger. For us to kind of like, treat good works as this kind of casual thing, no, we're to fight for them. I'm no longer there. I've renounced that life, and though I mess up, gosh, I mess up. There are things where, where I don't do what I want to do, and the things that I want to do, I don't do them, and I continue to fight. But here's what I know I've chosen to get into this battle, I've renounced it. I'm going to war at everything my flesh wants to do, and I'm going to continue to march towards the cross. That's Christianity. Grace-motivated action. Grace-driven efforts. Because you naturally don't gravitate towards those things. If you think it's just going to naturally happen, it won't. Sanctification is bloody. It's messy. It's awful. And unfortunately, we've, we've painted as this kind of sexy thing in the church. Just really growing in God. Yeah, yeah, that must suck right now. Because that means a lot of you in the story is going away. So I want to finish with uh, my man, Charles Spurge. Saul Spurgeon, if you don't know who he was as a pastor in the 1800s, um, I've done my best to quote him every week. I failed at times and I apologize, but um, I think he, he gives us a both and here that is good for us to remember as we continue to fight for good works. This is what he says. He desires that you who are being disciplined by his grace should know that you are altogether his. You are Christ's men, would also add women. You are each one to feel I do not belong to the world. I do not belong to myself. I belong only to Christ. I am set aside by him for himself only and his I will be. That's gotta be our mantra. I belong to Christ. I am Christ. I'm going to act into who he made me be. May we be a God grace driven people to love the world well because they've seen the reflection of Jesus Christ in our good works. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for who you are. Your grace is uh, big. It's profound. The gospel is crazy. It's so simple and yet so insanely complex that um, we recognize that you've come to eradicate sin. And that um, though we feel the the weight of that that grace and the beauty of that grace, there'll be a day where the world um, itself, all of creation... We'll, we'll, we'll see it in true that as First Peter tells us um, that, that, that no, we don't now see you. We still love you. But there'll be a day when we do actually see you. May that motivate us. As Galatians 2.20 um, tells us that we are to continue to crucify ourselves because we've been crucified with Christ. May that be a reality that at the forefront of our mind, we would hold fast to uh, Philippians 2.12. That um, um, uh, whatever it says, I don't know what it says. It says something good. Oh, it says that um, I, I am to work out my fear with salvation and trembling. That God, that as we continue to work out our fear with you, um, that we'd work it out with fear and trembling. We're grateful, God, for that, that we would see you as really big, that cares about sin enough to, to work us out of the, the, the bad um, habits and um, the palates that we have towards the flesh. And we would work towards things that honor you in all that we do. May we be motivated by grace. Grace, may it train us. Holy Spirit, please show yourself big in our lives and flex that we may um, continue to rely on, on what you're showing us and why you're doing what you're doing. We need wisdom and how to do this well. We love you. We praise you. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.